In this episode of STEMiverse, Marcus and I talk with Nicola O'Brien. Nicola is the founder of Code Rangers, a company based in Sydney that teaches children how to code, develop games and apps. Nicola created Code Rangers after a long career in corporate law and finance. She's particularly passionate about programming and understands the importance of technology literacy as a basic prerequisite for our children's digital future. Let's listen to Nicola as she describes her teaching philosophy as she applies it in Code Rangers. This is STEMiverse episode 12. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. Hello, Nicola. Uh, thank you very much for joining us to another episode of Stemiverse. Uh, it's a great um, honor to have you here with us. And in the next 45 minutes, we will explore your background in STEM education mm-hmm. and uh, ask a lot of um, sometimes strange questions, but we'll try not to be too strange today. Yes. So with me is um, Marcus. Uh, so Marcus Shapi from Nicobert Electronics. G'day. Yeah. So, Nicola, would you like to take a few minutes and tell us uh, about you, about your background, and what basically brings you to where you are today? Excellent. Good to chat to you today, Peter and Marcus. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, My name's Nicola O'Brien. I'm the founder of a company called Code Rangers. I started three years ago now um, with a view to get engaged with kids and show them what was possible with coding and technology generally because I really felt there was so much opportunity and so many really interesting ways to engage with kids and introduce them to the technology out there. And there wasn't a lot being done in schools, so I jumped on in and started some pilot workshops back in 2014. And out of that, I've now got um, programs across a number of schools, uh, after-school care centres, extracurricular classes and holiday camps, the whole lot. Uh, working around coding and using some micro bits and other technology as well. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Well, we'll get to uh, the details of Code Rangers mm-hmm. in a few minutes, but I'd like to ask you before that, uh, what was life like before Code Rangers for you? So um, we're trying to explore your background uh, a little bit uh, just to know what uh, what brought you to where we are, to where you are today. Yeah. Not a direct route, let me tell you that. Um, Never is. <laughs> no. Um, look, I grew up at a time where I guess university education and opportunities were a little more limited and a bit more linear in terms of what you did when you came out of high school. So my background is a law degree and an accounting degree. Mm-hmm. That's unexpected. Yes, I worked as a lawyer uh, for a number of years and became a finance lawyer because very few lawyers speak finance and I realised I had some good skills around numbers. Um, and from that became a financial analyst, understanding numbers and explaining them back to lawyers and then became the person that built the financial models and started getting into Visual Basic and things like that to build macros in Excel. And then remembered m- my dad as a computer scientist and probably somewhere late in my 20s started to talk to him about uh, computers and programming and starting to understand the world that he came from, which I'd always 
very studiously like an angry teenager ignored and wanted nothing to do with. So then I guess having had children myself, once I had them at school and had a bit of time to think about what I was interested in, started to really um, explore coding for myself because I wanted to understand how computers work and I couldn't bear the fact that I was using them so much and relying on them every day and had absolutely no idea what they were about under the lid. So I started to teach myself um, but also realised that I had a lot to offer because I've always really enjoyed training scenarios and facilitating workshops, um, being engaged with kids and just started to get this idea that maybe there was something in it that I could do. So taught myself to code and then realised I could code better than most eight-year-olds, so started working with eight-year-olds. <laughs> you going to do it? Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> so what made you actually, what triggered that switch from your law accounting profession into something like this education, completely new ground? Is there a particular moment? Yeah, there was a particular moment. I was lucky in that I had decided to stop working in the commerce field um, for various reasons and I had young kids and I guess I was very, very fortunate as a family we'd decided that we'd go down to one salary and we were making that work. So I had a bit of headspace to really question what I wanted to do with my time and what I could offer and so was able without having to have a huge leap of career just to go from working to not working and then slowly build something up from a base of zero and that's just something I've continued with ever since. So there was a moment I left the job because I was quite unwell for a little while and so I had that catalyst which was that I decided I definitely would stop white collar work and the professional world. Um, I was forced into that hand somewhat but then out of that came this beautiful long thinking process and going on long walks and talking to friends and wondering about what I would do next and that I think breathing space and not having to make a fast decision helped me really figure out what I wanted to do, which was a blessing in disguise. Right. As a child, do you remember yourself uh, being, in a way, entrepreneurial or open to adventures like this in life and, and sharp turns? Uh, quite the opposite, actually. I was having a really interesting conversation with my husband the other night because we both come from families where we were the first generation to go to university And there was a lot of pressure on us to do the right thing and get the stable job and get the high marks at school and not to take risks. And we were talking about the way we're raising our children to try and be fearless and entrepreneurial and fail and then learn from it. And then I thought, well, maybe this whole embracing failure perhaps is something that's a little bit of a luxury if you've got, you know, a nice middle-class stable household because you can afford to screw something up and throw it in the bin and start again. Because I think my parents certainly came from a much more frugal time and, you know, you didn't muck around and waste resources and take risks. You just went on a very smooth path. So um, that aspect of it is all very much a post-40 adventure for me, but I love it. You know, I sort of wish I could have my 20s again, but here we are. Well, they say that uh, today's 40s is the new 20s. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Happy if that was the case. I feel like that. We just don't look as good dancing in bars, though. <laughs> <laughs> we know what the good parts of being 20s are all about, so we keep those. Indeed. <laughs> so I've got to ask, did you do any teaching before you started Code Rangers at all? Yes and no. I was volunteer teaching, so I got involved um, through my school teaching ethics which I don't know if you guys have heard about ethics programs in school, but it's this great volunteer program where you 
come and explore ethical concepts with children while they're choosing not to be a part of a scripture program. So mm-hmm. I had been doing that, but I also, um, in the past, I've always been the one to put my hand up and offer to run kind of training sessions and, and group sessions to share knowledge and really enjoy that environment. Um, so I don't have a teaching qualification per se. And I have utmost respect for teachers with a good handle on pedagogy and and it's something I'd really like to look into doing in the future actually is, is backing up kind of the stuff that you muddle through hands-on and learn with some really good theory. Did having children kind of uh, push you towards being a volunteer teacher in ethics? Definitely, yes. Yeah, you, you sort of start the school journey with the children with certain ideas and expectations and then you start to realise maybe that's not quite how things operate and make your decision, I guess, whether you get involved and try and add a positive impact or whether you accept the status quo. And yeah, absolutely. Same same here. Um, I'm just looking at the parallels that we have. Um, in my case, even though I've been a teacher in universities for almost 15 years, so the whole thing changed when once we had kids. And once the kids started going to school and going and basically going through the process that they were going through and that experience changed the way that I see teaching and actually changed the way that I do teaching today. So it's, uh, is it the same for you, Marcus? Right. Ask me in a year's time. Yeah. So you'll you'll get there. (laughs) We start school next year, for real. It certainly makes me slow down and look at things a lot more carefully and be much slower to jump in and intervene or you know, take the role at the front of the classroom. I'm now much, much slower and want to see what the kids are doing and really understand where they're at before I leap into anything. Yeah, it makes it a little more personal. Yeah, like guide them along their discovery as opposed to thinking that you're somehow delivering magic words. Yeah, and you know everything, right? Yeah. My kids know that I don't know everything, so I I, I can't even fool them anymore. <laughs> I've got very good BS detectors. Uh, yes. So I wonder, uh, Nicola, uh, from your background, I, I imagine that you had a lot of options as far as what is it you could teach is concerned, and you decided to teach programming through Code Rangers. Why did you choose that as your topic of choice? I just think it's quite cool, really. I think it is um, very cool. It's very cool. Like, I just think anything we can do for kids to help them understand the technology that they're using and embrace it and think about how they can adapt it for their own purposes is a really great skill just for kids even to have an inkling that they can actively engage with the stuff and they don't have to just use it in the form it's given to them. Just seems like a really powerful thing. So I feel like it's it's probably the one thing I more than say teaching swimming or something. It, it, it's just an area where I think you can actually change a kid's kind of general outlook on how they see their world, which mm, and how they interact. Yeah. Uh, so how did you make the leap from, I guess, volunteering and doing ethics uh, lessons to teaching coding? That's quite a quite yeah. a leap. <laughs> um, I borrowed some of my friends' kids. Okay. <laughs> Experiments. <laughs> and my first survey monkey to like about 30 friends and just said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Are your kids interested and can they come? And getting about 20 responses within the first 15 minutes of saying yes. And I just went, whoa, okay. And so had completely maxed out my first pilot group okay, within so half a day of that. So you did the, the friends, family and fools 
uh, side of thing. <laughs> and then, uh, well, how did you go from, I guess, the three Fs to actually teaching in schools and bringing co-rangers uh, into schools? It's taken a while. So, you know, it's quite easy to get extracurricular classes up and running if you find a venue and it's matching up, you know, the venue, the tutor and the kids. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been very led by parents and communities, I think. I haven't really gone out and found places to put on classes. I've had people hear about me and call me up and say, can you come and do something in this area? Mm-hmm. And then we'll sort of explore it together and see if there's a suitable venue and um, find tutors that live close by because Sydney being Sydney, there's nothing worse than offering someone one hour's work, two hours from their home. So we try and kind of pop up where there's a match between tutors and kids and venues. So that part is good and that sort of just happens fairly organically and then um, the step into schools I guess it's just you know every brush up I have with the school it's the chance to engage and have a chat about what we're doing and you know to the extent that I have a kid come to an after school class and make something great I'll often if I have a way of getting in touch with their teacher let them know they're doing some wonderful stuff and you know is there a chance they can come into school and show you what they've worked on because it's wonderful and out of that you get opportunities where they might say yeah why don't you come on in and you know run a lunchtime class or workshop or you know and and slowly I'm building out that network I've been pretty hesitant to do it but not hesitant but you know it's taken me time to build up the confidence and to sort of feel confident and capable to do that. I wonder when parents or even teachers come to you saying could you do a workshop in our area for our kids what kind of outcomes are they interested in do they just simply um, looking for somebody to teach their kids how to play around with Python, perhaps? Or are they looking for some kind of deeper understanding and development by the kids of uh, programming concepts and logic and constructing algorithms and uh, procedural thinking? So are they going that far? Look, it's a really hard question to answer, and I think... Anytime things have felt like they're not going well, it's often because there's a mismatch between expectations. Mm -hmm. So there's a full range. I get the range of kids who maybe struggle socially at school but really love computers and their parents are just really grateful there's a place for them to come and enjoy and make friends and feel comfortable and that they're contributing positively. Um, And they actually don't care about programming outcomes whatsoever. They're just really delighted that their kid has a great time and feels really at home. Um, I've had one kid whose parents pulled him out after two weeks because he'd done two weeks of Python and his parents sat him down with Idle and said, write me a function. And he was a nine-year-old parent. And they rang me and said, not good enough, and pulled him out of class. Not ready for Google yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, so there's the full range. And certainly with extracurricular stuff, our emphasis on, on engagement and encouragement, and it's about offering something for everybody. So we we're not interested in catering to a particular cohort we want everybody and so it's fairly simple concepts but it's just exposing them to the idea of programming coding what it's about and the sense of problem solving and strategies to create something so how do you do this what do you teach with and um, what, what do you actually teach do you the, the tools and yeah. the topics and the, i guess the programming languages as well yeah. With the younger kids, we don't want to worry about syntax. We don't want to worry about semicolons and curly brackets. So scratch. Scratch, yep. Uh, which is just the gold standard, I think, because it's a sandbox programming environment and the kids can follow their own passions and 
make what they like. So, so what is Scratch? Scratch is um, if you can imagine Lego on a computer. Mm-hmm. So you build your creation by clicking together blocks of code, and you can use animation. So your code controls animations which you see on the screen. So you can create two characters which then interact and tell each other jokes. Uh, you can create a quite sophisticated game using graphics. Um, you can also use it to use lists and data structures. So we make explain lists and things by creating complement machines which have like one list of adjectives, one list of nouns. We pull random things out and we make up silly sentences. What a majestic hat you're wearing. What a ridiculous pair of shoes. You know, things like that. But it gets kids understanding how we're saving information how we're accessing the information, how we're joining up with other bits of information, how we use inputs and outputs. Variables. That sort of level, exactly. And then with Scratch, we can introduce hardware. So we're using Makey Makeys at the moment, and the kids have built, um, I can send you photos, they've built board games, and they've used copper wire, copper tape, um, to program certain squares on the board game. So as they move the character around, if it touches one of those squares, up on the screen will flash something like, move back three spaces, move four or five spaces, or a little animation or mini game they have to play when they're on that square. So you can take it out to really great, interesting places with the kids. Um, so that's what our little kids do. Uh, with the older kids, we're using Python and exploring ideas mostly around um, it's still fairly simple. It takes a while to learn this stuff. So, so Python's a programming language? Yeah, Python's a programming language. Yes, a typed-in programming language, so you have to remember where to put the characters. I feel like I have the future in my hands because I have to decide whether I teach them to tab or use three spaces. Uh, I'd say go with spaces because tabs can vary between operating systems. Well, yes. There was some research (laughs) that came out. This is a digression, but did you see the research last week where they did a full statistical analysis on developers and found that developers that use three spaces earn more? There you go. Oh, I use. I knew that. I press the tab key and it maps across to spaces. There's <laughs> <laughs> got automation. <laughs> New protocol that we teach three spaces. Ah, three spaces. Okay. Um, and also we do a bit of web development because it's a really great way for kids to express themselves. If they use HTML and CSS, they, which are just languages of the web, they can create a website about their passion project. And how, how do you do the web development? What are you using for that? We use a free product. We use the Thimble by Mozilla, which is an online editor where you can create, it's got predictive text. So as you start to type in your tags, it'll come up with the list of tags for that letter. And also you can publish straight to the web from there. So you don't need to worry about uploading files or anything. And you can remix and share. So it's really simple. So you are teaching skills that computer or that technology literate citizens of the 21st century need to have. So you've got a bit of physical computing there. You've got web programming where like the whole of human knowledge today is on the web and whole of communications between almost 5 billion people is done through the web. So they get an understanding of that. And then the logic starting with scratch going into uh, Python. Mm-hmm. So you, you've covered all that. Makey, really, makey. really, and then make and make it for physical computing. You mentioned yeah. something a micro bit, a micro bit, another tool. In the micro bits, yeah, that's uh, what I've been using the last 10 weeks and absolutely loved it. I've had so much fun with that. What is the micro bit? The micro bit is a mini computer, like a Raspberry Pi. 
similar to raspberry pi, less, uh, less functional in some ways. It's got a smaller processor, doesn't it? But um, it has a 25, a 555 LED display, which is very handy. So the kids can flash up messages and strings and numbers. And it also has an accelerometer, uh, thermometer, has compass orientation, and it has radio, which makes it super easy to communicate between them, which I really like. Is it Wi-Fi? Uh, maybe I think like a 2.4 gigahertz type. Oh, of, right, okay. Uh, you know. So you can have wireless communications with it. So you can have two microbits talking to each other, perhaps. Is that possible? Absolutely. So what we're doing in class next week, uh, we wrote some code that the two would communicate. So they also have buttons. So the code said when I press the button on the left-hand side of the microprocessor, and a left arrow will pop up on the other micro bit. Likewise for the right. Likewise, if I press them together, I get a forward arrow. And if I shake a backwards pointing arrow, and this week one person's going to hide objects throughout the space that we work in, and then they'll control the other person to retrieve them by sending signals between the two micro bits and using the arrows that the person has to follow where they're being told to go. So that sort of activity with kids is just really fun. I wonder how much of your lessons are scripted ahead of time and how much you leave up to the children to explore their curiosities? It's a mixture of the two. I always try and leave it open. I very much believe in kids uh, being digital creators and coding to learn. So it's got to have a meaning beyond just learning code. So, for example, we'd spent a few weeks doing if and else statements in Python, and then the kids found all these silly flowcharts online, like, you know, should I do my assignment? And it's like, have you eaten? Have you browsed the net? Have you done this? Have you pulled a friend? and silly flowcharts and say, why don't we try and code them in Python so we can create that as an interactive game that will lead you to the same outcomes as the flowchart. And so then the kids went off and explored themselves and found things they wanted. So there's always a mixture of child-led areas of interest and outcomes they're interested in with um, the theory sort of being scaffolded around concepts the kids want to explore. How sticky is all this technology for kids in terms of, when I say sticky, I mean, um, let's say that one of your students is playing around with a micro bit and they bump onto an obstacle, perhaps a bug in the software, something not connected properly. How hard do you see those kids trying to solve it without just giving up and watching a YouTube video about uh, mm -hmm. pranks, perhaps? I think it depends on the environment you make in the classroom and sort of the protocols you try and have around errors and investigations. So, you know, if you have the strategy from day one that if something doesn't do what you expect, you have a process around sort of trying to troubleshoot. So, you know, have a look at the code and you compare it with someone else's, ask the person next to you and just step through those things before you put your hand up and feel helpless. Do you explain that uh, to the class or to the students before you start? So you establish those protocols early on? Yeah, we set those up and we also, um, every time I intervene, if something's not working, you always try and leave the kid feeling that they've addressed the problem. So you never solve a problem for them, you don't give an answer? No, because then that sort of breeds a, a feeling of helplessness, really. Independence. You know, we had a situation this week where kind of everything that could go wrong was going wrong. Hmm. And then at the end of that, and that was beyond what the kids could do because we had some proper technical issues. 
And at the end we had a chat about, I sort of said to the kids, what's resilience in the context of coding and what does it mean? And we said, look, some weeks things just don't work and you come back next week with a good attitude and we try and catch up what we couldn't do this week and, you know. So they actually saw you trying to deal with a genuine problem that you had. Yeah. And the, the lesson to them was, uh, for them was just seeing you, how you dealt with it. Yeah, and I didn't want them to, you know, we had one kid with dog poo on his shoe, another girl who said she felt like vomiting because of the smell and was then nauseous. <laughs> and then the server was just kind of, it, this was not, every time we tried to download code the same way we do every week, just would not do it. And the emulator on screen vanished, so we couldn't test the code and everything was just falling apart around me. But we kind of finished with high fives around the room and talked about what it meant and how we were going to come back next week and it was, you know, going to be good next week. So, Just one more thing. Just, um, I'm curious, are these classes running weekly or do you have schedules that fit the needs of different kids depending on school commitments perhaps and other things? By and large, we run a weekly cycle just so we get a group of kids that are together for at least, you know, 10 weeks for a term um, so we can get a bit of momentum and carry projects forward. I think um, integrating someone partway through the term is really quite tricky because you don't want anyone to turn up and go, well, this is really hard. You know, you want them to feel that it's manageable. And I had a girl come into a class recently four weeks into term because she'd been travelling And her initial reaction was, I feel miles behind everyone else. I don't feel confident. This isn't for me. And that's not what I want to happen. So, you know, I gave her lots of extra support and help to come up to speed. But I'd rather have a group of kids that start and finish a term together so they all can move at a good pace. True. Yeah, you need to have that continuity. Yeah. And uh, and this a cohort of students with similar capabilities, similar levels of that, um, you can progress them all together. Well, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question, uh, but it could be reality. You never know what happens in the future. It could, it could happen. So let's say that uh, suddenly you become a powerful minister of education and um, you've got a huge budget, let's say a uh, billion dollars, and you can design... Uh, no, it's going to be multi-billion these days multi-billion. if you hear about the... <laughs> I'd say about the same as, you know, how much are a bunch of F-35s? Billions. Oh. you got to do the small pinky thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, a few no. billion dollars. So you can design an educational system in Australia in any way that you like. What would be some of the key characteristics of that system? The first and foremost thing would be professional development for teachers. There's no point spending money on any cool tech if people don't know how to use it or aren't comfortable with it or don't are not actively excited by the idea of using it. So I would roll out a massive program for every teacher that somehow left them on full salary while they could leave their class for a week and they didn't have to stress about finding replacement teachers and they didn't have to worry about workload and they could just come and learn. And that would probably cost quite a lot. And if there was anything left after that, then I'd start looking at tech. But I think if you want to make an actual difference in Australia where we really need to oh and in the budget i would say that you get a hundred dollars for your kids to enroll in stem classes not just sports <laughs> <laughs> yes wow this is so simple isn't it i don't understand and look i don't think it has to cost a billion dollars but uh if i may offer my opinion i fully agree like it is it always starts with human resources and that is also what can make or break the system and technology these days is commodities it's cheap like a microbit 
it's twenty dollars, twenty five dollars. It's a human that make. But they're worthless if you give them to teachers without the support to use them. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to get you guys to stop there. <laughs> I didn't know about this school sport $100 thing. Do you know about this? No, no. Tell me more. The New South Wales budget came out last week and one of the big cash splashes to make us all love Gladys is that every family gets $100 to pay for sports fees, you know, soccer memberships, swimming lessons. And my take on that is, A, what is the bureaucracy and paperwork involved in this? That's crazy. But secondly, we're quite good at sport already as a country. <laughs> Maybe we can divert that to areas where we could really do with a boost. Robot soccer. Robot soccer. Does that count as a sport? Well, I would like to know. <laughs> we, have to, we have to check with the authorities about that. But I, I do think that obesity is a problem, in, especially in young kids. Um, mm. So, yeah, I can see that. But, uh, look, Australia is a first-world country with... Uh, Means there are means, so I, I can't see why it should be one or the other. Um, should be both. No, I think mm, maybe sport. maybe two hundred dollars for STEM. Got me thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Game the system. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, okay. great. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I was going to say, how do we get kids more interested in science and technology? That's uh, tell them it's sport. There's so many things that kids can do today, like their attention is spread among a lot of different activities, a lot of flashy things in today's kids' environment. So how do we get them focused on what we think counts the most, which is science and technology? Well, you know, I'd probably come back to the same repetitive answer. A big part of it's how it talks and your, your worldview changes when you have children. Like at my children's primary school, very few of the teachers have any specialist math skills. And the children um, are taught maths in a streamed environment, which is good that they break out from normal lessons and move to other classrooms. But the negative of that is that the classroom teachers completely wash their hands of maths because they say, oh, no, you're in a separate room for maths. That's a whole separate topic. So it's not integrated across the learning hall in the same way literacy is, where that is built into everything they do. And I think Right there, you've got the beginning of this issue that a generalist teacher goes, uh -uh, maths is not my thing, and can get away with that, really. And there's some research that came out this week about the state of student enrolments in STEM subjects, but also teacher numbers, and it's in decline. And until that can be fixed into an engaging way, it's really hard to think that we can make a big difference, I really believe. And, and, all these after-school STEM clubs and things are nice and fun for a certain kind of kid. But I think the world we live in, we need to just give all kids skills that they can think about as they get older and not make it a niche, self-selecting thing, just have it across the board. So by saying, by saying uh, how do we get kids interested in science and technology, we don't necessarily mean that all of them have to become engineers or scientists, but to have uh, a good understanding of those topics because... It is a modern society. We need to understand how, you know, how biology works, how medicine works, how electricity and your computer or your car works, um, because um, that's that's your modern environment. Yeah, it is. And most kids find science at school fantastic. They love it, right? Like yeah. blowing stuff up. And... I've never met a kid that doesn't like science. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. So what happens between the early primary years and high school? It's a bit of a mystery, isn't yeah. it? But yeah. So I wonder, you, you've taught a lot of young kids. You work with other people that through your company teach young kids. What are kind of the, the qualities that you that you would like to see in a person that teaches technology to young people, not necessarily hard skills, but like the characteristics, like the character of a person? Sure. Um, what I look for is people who are very observant and very um, empathetic so they can look around a room and observe who needs some extra support, who needs more challenge empathetic so they don't you know not a hard taskmaster but someone who is really encouraging and could say yeah that's great how about we try this next and oh, I can see you're working really hard on that what about moving in this direction and those are the skills I look at which you know particularly with children are for me a lot more important than the technical skills yeah particularly with young kids they don't have the abstract thinking skills to really that far with coding you know they can use it as a problem solving school but you know you don't need someone with a computer science degree to teach eight-year-olds coding mm. in a fun sort of after-school club but you do need someone who can communicate and observe and empathize and encourage mm. and the, their own their own attitude towards learning i suppose should be um, a- appropriate to to welcome learning uh, welcome the unknown i suppose not be afraid of it yeah. And there are some great coding teachers out there. Like I've got some people I'm so proud of on my team. And it's really great because you would think in some cases that programmers would be such black, white thinkers and no, that's wrong, you know, kind of approach. But I've been really happy to just get some great people on board who um, have got programming wise, but also have the people skills, which is really important to me. That's really cool. How big is Code Rangers now? Um, depending on how you measure it, we've got uh, nine tutors working with us, mm-hmm. with me. Uh, I'm in probably about 200 children a week getting instruction from us um, and starting to get uh, more involved with teachers, so teacher professional development sessions happening in Term 3. We've gone global. We've got a team of five girls who are visiting Silicon Valley in August as part of a pitch for an app they're working on. So that's super exciting. They've got the tap on the shoulder as part of the ideas boom and been given some funding to travel to Silicon Valley. Are you in Sydney or outside as well? I mean, uh, just Sydney at the moment, yeah. That's so awesome. We're going to jump into rapid fire question time, just given the time. So these aren't questions you necessarily have to answer shortly or You'll be answering them shortly, but you don't have to be short about your answer. (laughs) So let's jump in. So who has been the most influential in shaping the way you teach? Seymour Puppet. Seymour Puppet. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, I wonder, wonder, since you did teach uh, so many kids and... um, uh, you all have a large organization to, to deal with. Um, is there an application that you can't live without as a teacher? Like a software app? It could be a software app. It could be pen and paper. I'll tell you what, actually, I use Zapier. Zapier, huh? Yes, uh, integrating a lot of different things together. Yeah, I, that, that's my friend. Yeah. So we're going to have to ask, how do you use Zapier? Like, what do you use it for? 
Um, I use Zapier to run the business, so it connects all the inquiries from my website to my customer database, to my accounting software, to my email automation software, and to what else? I think those are the main ways that I'm using it. So it's just stitching up every place that I have contact with a, a parent or a teacher, um, connecting it all together so I'm not having to duplicate information. Uh, I'll just add to that that uh, in today's world, uh, the cy- cyberspace is not an ocean of islands, uh, but it's a place where you've got a lot of, let's say, workshops and they can all speak to each other. And Zapier makes that connectivity, that speaking between all these workshops possible. So all these uh, different applications can now talk to each other and exchange data. So a lot of modern applications are built on that concept. Great. Especially good when you're teaching kids to code. Yeah. So we've just had Edutech in Sydney, Australia, which is a big conference. So I have to ask, what professional development have you found most useful in the last year? The things I get the most value from are networking. I'll be honest, Um, opportunities to speak to other educators about what they're using and what's working for them and not working. And that's usually informal conversations. It's not normally learnt from the formal presentations, but it's just the people out there who um, have some time and opportunity to experiment and try different things and learning from them about how they're using these tools and what they're doing with them is... Do you attend meetups? I do meetups frequently um twitter is wonderful for sharing ideas with educators so which are uh, any particular ones that you'd like to recommend to people um i participate in twitter chats there's the uh, um aussie ed twitter chat there's one out of new zealand and there's also what is school on a friday morning mm-hmm. so those are monthly are they monthly meetups we can list them in our show notes those are, sorry those are weekly twitter chats Oh, Twitter chats, right. Oh, that's another thing. I've, I've never done so that. So what, what is a Twitter chat? <laughs> like, I ask this as someone who's used Twitter for Did you 10 years Twitter? ago. <laughs> for the last 10 years, I've never thought of it as the concept of a chat. It's um, someone moderates a discussion on Twitter and they'll designate a hashtag that's the Twitter hashtag for that conversation. So if you are on Twitter at 8.30 on a Sunday night, and use a hashtag Aussie Ed that will loop you into a conversation with a bunch of other teachers. And the moderator will have five or six questions to talk about over the hour. And you answer questions, see other people's answers, reply to them, and share ideas, and generally in a one hour chat. And it's very helpful because they will have a theme each week. Um, for example, how are you, you using automation in the classroom or, you know, what, how are your children using Scratch to create with code or something like that? And you just get to share ideas with other people. And this is all done within Twitter or there's another website that sort of no, no. takes? all within Twitter. So it's all open and public and you can, a lot of them use automated software to record the whole chat and publish it as a document afterwards. Right, okay. Wow. That's, that's great. Thank you for that. I wasn't aware of this resource. So you, you just have a total stream of, you know, your Twitter stream just becomes full of tweets after this thing. It does. It does. So you might. But you can filter by the hashtag. So each message yeah. has the same hashtag. I have my screen open with one screen on that hashtag and it just updates and another screen open on notifications. So you can reply to people as they reply to you and you just toggle between them. 
Mind-boggling. Um, yeah, mind-boggling. I, I really thought that I just used Twitter once a week to take the photo of the food and uh, <laughs> comment on that. Or look at Donald Trump's tweets. That's, that's what I use Twitter for. Uh, let's not go there. Let's go. We don't My want to be depressed. His tweets and they'd like to draw. Come on. Uh, sorry, sorry. I digress. Peter, Peter, it's all about making STEM great again. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, I'm afraid, oh, gee, we're right out of time. So I've got to ask any parting thoughts for our listeners, any do's or don'ts that you want to really call out here and make sure that they pay attention to. Oh, I think just do get involved and have a try and uh, learn with your kids. I think if anyone's listening who's a teacher, don't be worried about not knowing what you're doing in front of the kids because it's all so new and experimental that everyone's learning at the same time. And there's kids are not alarmed or spooked or anything by seeing teachers learning at the same time with the stuff. It's more important to give it a go. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Great. So uh, just before uh, we finish the uh, discussion, I'd like to uh, know if people want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do it. And, um, any, any special offers? What, what, what can uh, people do if they want to try out uh, your classes? I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in getting their kids involved in coding or any teachers that are interested in getting something set up at their school, either for the teachers or the students. Uh, the best way to reach out would be through the website coderangers.com where there's a contact form and you can drop me a note with what you're interested in. Uh, we've also got free resources there for teachers, so you can check that out. Um, and any parents out there that are interested in what we're up to, you're welcome to let me know that you heard about it on Semiverse and you can come along and do a free trial class at Code Rangers. You'll find us in Sydney. We've got classes running in Marrickville and throughout the North Shore. Um, so keep us in mind. Great. Thank you very much, Nicola. Really enjoyed Thank you very much. Uh, talking to you this afternoon. Terrific. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.